This morning, our scripture reading is from the book of Psalms, chapter 28. Please follow along and listen with your heart as I read God's word. To you, O Lord, I call. My rock, be not deaf to me, lest if you be silent to me, I become like those who go down to the pit. Hear the voice of my pleas for mercy. When I cry to you for help, when I lift up my hands toward your most holy sanctuary, do not drag me off with the wicked, with the workers of evil, who speak peace with their neighbors while evil is in their hearts. Give to them according to their work and according to, their, to the evil of their deeds. Give to them according to the work of their hands. Render them their due reward. Because they do not regard the works of the Lord or the works of his hands, he will tear them down and build them up no more. Blessed be the Lord, for he has heard the voice of my pleas for mercy. The Lord is my strength and my shield. In him my heart trusts, and I am helped. My heart exults, and with my song I give thanks to him. The Lord is the strength of his people. He is the saving refuge of his anointed. O oh, save your people and bless your heritage. Be their shepherd and carry them forever. Psalm 28. We are moving through a summer in the Psalms. We have come to this psalm on a Father's Day. I typically don't just preach a isolated or solo sermon on this day. I have to on Mother's Day because I won't get away with it. But on Father's Day, since I am one, we'll just stick with the text, with the psalm. And it's very appropriate because really what the question that rises to the surface of Psalm 28 is this. When you are in trouble, what do you do? What is the biblical prescription for when your heart is in trouble, when you are gripped by fear and when you are overwhelmed with life's complexities? That's Psalm 28. And the answer is that you need a rock. You need stable, high ground. Or at other times when the battle is so fierce, it becomes eyeball to eyeball. What you will want is a shield. And David, as a warrior king, knew the value of both firm, high ground and a shield. Because in severe trouble, you will want both. The context is uncertain, but it probably fits best with David's own son, Absalom, who revolted and snatched the kingdom away from his father. David was in other difficult situations, sure, but probably nothing as painful as a son betraying his father. It is said of Absalom in 2 Samuel 14.25, Now in all Israel there was no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. This is a young man, a warrior son, who was blessed beyond measure. Absalom had a sense of justice in his own heart. It was Absalom who revenged his sister Tamar, her defilement, by killing his brother, David's son, Amnon. Second Samuel 13.22 says that Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister Tamar. Absalom was patient. He waited two years to unfold a plot and go to the king, his father, and invite all of David's sons to a banquet. At the banquet, he commanded his servants in 2 Samuel 13, 28. He told his servants, mark when Amnon's heart is merry with wine. And when I say to you, strike Amnon, then kill him. 
the initial report, the messengers run back and the initial report that David, the father king, receives is that all of his sons were slaughtered at the banquet. You can imagine David's heart as a father receiving that news. And one of his warrior leaders comes along and says, no, you don't have to think that. I believe the rest of your sons are alive, which was true. Matter of fact, it says in 2 Samuel 13, 28, then all the king's sons arose and each mounted his mule and fled. Absalom runs away. He's gone for three years. And during this time, it says this. And I want you to see a glimpse of David's heart as a father, even with a murderous son. Second Samuel 13, 39 says David mourned for his son day after day. And the spirit of the king longed to go out to Absalom because he was comforted about Amnon since he was dead. Of course, the story is David sends Joab to bring Absalom back to Jerusalem. But David, for his own integrity's sake as a king, refuses to go visit Absalom. Absalom calls Joab, ends up getting Joab's attention by burning Joab's field, sends him in. And of course, then Absalom is able to appear before David and he bows before David on his knees, puts his head down to the floor and David kisses him as a sign of acceptance. It seems like immediately after that reconciliation, I want you to hear what scripture says in 2 Samuel 15. After this, Absalom bought a chariot and horses and he hired 50 bodyguards to run ahead of him. He got up early every morning and went out to the gate. The gate is where business was transacted, where legal matters were raised before they went in to the throne room. He got up early every morning and went out to the gate of the city when people brought a case to the king for judgment. So Absalom is intervening before the case goes to his father. Absalom would ask where in Israel they were from and they would tell him their tribe. And Absalom would say this. You've really got a strong case here. It's too bad the king doesn't have anyone to hear it. I wish I were the judge. Then everyone could bring their cases for judgment to me and I would give them justice. When people tried to bow down before Absalom, he wouldn't let them. Instead, he'd take their hand, he'd lift them and he'd kiss them. It says Absalom did this with everyone who came to the king for judgment. And listen to this phrase. And so he stole the hearts of all the people of Israel. A messenger soon arrives in Jerusalem, tells David what Absalom has done. He's, he's done this insurrection. And it says, all Israel has joined with Absalom in a conspiracy against you. And David says this, and this is not typical of David. He says, then we must flee at once or it will be too late. David urged his men, hurry. If we get out of the city before Absalom arrives, both we and the city of Jerusalem will be spared from disaster. David flees to present a civil war within Jerusalem among the people he loves and is serving. So what has happened up to this point? This is just one context that we can place Psalm 28 into. At this point, David's world is crumbling. Have you ever felt that? Have you ever been in a season of life where your world, it is just crumbling and there is no sure footing? David, went, David almost in a second goes from being the king to a fugitive within his own kingdom. Absalom had stolen the hearts of the people and the nation turned against the shepherd king, David. The fickle, the fickle populace crowd receives Absalom like he is a Messiah savior and rejects David like he's a criminal and everything is collapsing. I've talked with several of you on the phone and in person this week, 
And some of you feel like that's what's happening in your life. It's a difficult time for many of us who find ourselves in a complicated and highly complex situation. And here's the good news this morning. Psalm 28 is for you. Psalm 20, we, don't, we, we do not need to just learn more about Psalm 28 this morning. We don't need to know its structure. We don't need to know sort of the Hebrew parallelism or if it's a chiastic structure. What we need to do as God's people is learn to pray and believe Psalm 28. You need to personalize this psalm for your circumstance. Psalm 28 does divide into four natural sections quickly so you understand it because then we're going to put sort of a personalized description above each section. Here it is. It's simply a request to be heard, verses 1 and 2, a prayer for vindication. That is what makes this psalm unique within the first 28 psalms. That's verses 3 to 5, a praise for being heard, verses 6 to 7, and then a request. It's interesting. From an individual request, David moves to a corporate prayer for everyone under his care. And that's verses 8 to 9. But for our purposes, I want to connect these with sort of prayer requests so that by the time we're done, hopefully in 20 minutes, you'll be able to pray Psalm 28 in your crumbling circumstances. Number one, Lord, my rock, do not be deaf to me. Secondly, Lord, give them the punishment they deserve. Third, Lord, be my strength and shield. And fourth, Lord, be a saving refuge for others under my care. See, we can pray that in the most desperate, most complicated, most complex circumstances that we face. Look at verse 1. Lord, my rock, be not deaf to me. To you, O Lord, I call. My rock, do not be deaf to me, lest if you be silent to me, and I don't want you to lose the meaning here, when he says, lest I become like those who go down to the pit, he's simply saying, this situation that I'm facing is probably going to lead to my death. And if you don't answer, if you don't act, I'm going to be captured and I'm going to be killed. That's the tension. David is facing that kind of danger. Time is not on David's side. David does not have several years to see God answer this prayer. This is urgent. It is immediate. It is life and death. Do you know it is an, it is an awful experience to know God as silent when you're in trouble? You ever had that experience to pray and you feel like it is a a one sided conversation to pray and pray sometimes for years and the heavens seem like brass. They're silent. Do you know that is not an uncommon experience for Old Testament saints? And a matter of fact, they don't even try to hide it. It's right there in the scriptures inviting you, if you would, in your own experience with God as silent to wrestle with them. For example, in Psalm 50, verse 21, God responds. Listen to what God says. I have been silent. Does that surprise you? God knew he had been distant, seemingly muzzled in a very difficult situation. God says, I have been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself. There are times when you should notice his silence. Don't just push through his silence. There's a purpose sometimes for God being withdrawn from you 
and silent from you. Isaiah asks in Isaiah 64, verse 12, Will you restrain yourself at these things, O Lord? Will you keep silent and afflict us so terribly? David prayed in Psalm 109, verse 1, O God of my praise, do not be silent. Habakkuk struggled with God's seeming indifference to evil. He asks a very strong question, really in the form of an accusation. He says this, Why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? This is a prayer that is born out of the tension between God's goodness, or we would say His omnibenevolence, His all-goodness compared to His all-power or His sovereignty. There are times when we need to cry out and address that tension. The psalmist cried out in Psalm 83, verse 1, O God, do not be silent. Do not be deaf. Do not be quiet, O God. But do you know it's not just the psalmist's experience to have that kind of tension in his heart? Listen to what the Son of God Himself prayed. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What Jesus teaches us in that moment is there are righteous times when God is silent. There is a mysterious purpose for why He remains quiet. Psalm 28 is a prayer for those needing deliverance from danger, from those who are facing death. As a matter of fact, David's prayer displays the faith that pleases God. A a determination to trust God in the midst of danger. Look at it again. Now, whether the context is Absalom or another danger, David examples a right response. Look at verse 1. To you, O Lord, I call my rock. See, David had already known God as being immovable and unshakable even when his world was crumbling. It's a great image. My rock. My safe place. Matter of fact, this is an echo from an earlier psalm, even from last week's psalm. Look at Psalm 27. Just should be on the other side of your, the page or one page back. Psalm 27, verse 5. David prays, For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock, a high place of protection. Go back to Psalm 18. David actually uses the term three different times in that psalm. Look at verse 2. He said this, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Let me ask you real quick. I mean, David is repeating this theme of God's immovability unshakability, do you believe that right now in your situation? Can you at least say that is who God has proved Himself to be? Unshakable, immovable, stable. Then the next step is easy. You cry out to Him. Psalm 18.31 For who is God but the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? Look at verse 46, Psalm 18. The Lord lives and blessed be my rock. He personalizes it and exalted be the God of my salvation. See, the image of God as a rock really stresses two different truths. First, and we've repeated this already so that so that the truth sinks in, is that God is a firm, unshakable place for those who rely on him. It's got to be accompanied by trust, looking to him 
as unshakable, firm. Because circumstances shift like sand. Relationships crumble. Societies deteriorate. But God is a what? God is a rock. He's the one that does not shift. Hebrews says this of Jesus Christ. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. You never need to wake up wondering who Jesus is. You never need to wake up wondering if the gospel is sufficient to rescue you, to save you out of your troubles. Second, the image of a rock is this, that God is a hideaway or this hidden crag in a cavern in which a weary psalmist or someone like David, the fugitive king who's being hunted, can hide and get some rest. So there's this stability, the picture of stability. There is also a picture of security and rest. So are you anxious this morning? Are you in trouble? Are you in the grip of fear? Look at verse 1. When I read it, just pray this from your heart. To you, O Lord, I call. My rock, be not deaf to me, lest if you be silent to me, I become like those who go down to the pit. Look at verse 2. He emphasizes it again. Hear the voice of my pleas for mercy. When I cry to you for help, make no mistake, David, mighty warriors crying for help. And then look at what he does. His, his heart cry is accompanied by an external gesture which shows the sincerity of his request. When I lift up my hands towards your most holy sanctuary. His prayer is accompanied with an action. You know what it said of Jesus in Luke chapter 24, verse 50, that when Jesus led them out as far as Bethany, Jesus lifted up his hands and blessed them. There's something about the picture of an external gesture that is supposed to mirror our heart. So David is crying out for help. He's either lifting up his hands one way or the other, and he's showing God his earnestness to be saved. So what danger are you facing? What fear is crippling? Cry out to God from your heart. Now, in verses 3 to 5, David now moves to the main portion of this psalm, the distinctive feature of this psalm, and that is this, and, and we're wording it this way, Lord, give them the punishment they deserve. Let me ask you, does that sound wrong to pray? We have, we have a fairly soft Christian culture so that when we come across this, it almost sounds self-centered and vindictive, doesn't it? Lord, give them the punishment they deserve. Now, remember, all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. How can a sinner pray for the judgment of another sinner? The description that David gives is not just people who sin, but people who do such wickedness that they are living as if there is no God. It's exactly what Psalm 14.1 says. They say the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And the fool is not just the court, the court clown or a gesture. This is the person who actually has decided to live life as if God doesn't see what they're doing. To live life as though he will never or she will never have to give an account, account for their actions. Look at verse 3. Psalm 28. And think of Absalom fitting this portrait. David prays, Do not drag me off with the wicked, with the workers of evil, 
who speak peace with their neighbors. Okay, have the picture of Absalom at the gate, throwing his dad under the bus to everybody who comes along because the evil in his heart wants to usurp the kingdom. Who speak peace with their neighbors while evil is in their hearts. It was Absalom who lured David's sons to a banquet. It was Absalom who asked the king's permission to go worship at Hebron while he sent secret messengers to snatch the kingdom. Look at verse 4. So David prays, Give to them according to their work and according to the evil of their deeds. Give to them according to the work of their hands. Render them their due reward. And we can pray that. We can pray this for wicked and evil people. The prayer is for the deeds of people to return upon them. As Proverbs 26, 27 warns, if you set a trap for others, you will get caught in it yourself. If you roll a boulder down on others, it will crush you instead. This is what this prayer looks like. It is a prayer for those who dig a pit for themselves to fall into it. For those who roll a boulder to harm others, to be harmed and crushed by it. For all the Hamans in the world who want to execute the innocent, righteous Mordecais to be hung on their own gallows. It is a prayer for wicked people to, rip, to reap quickly the wickedness they have sown. That's the prayer. Do you pray like that? Do you pray like that for our city, our society, our state, our country? Because of the hate and the malice and the violence seen over the past several weeks should be disturbing to you. The media's bias and false narratives, sometimes on both sides, should be infuriating. It should at least fuel this kind of prayer. For us to pray and desire that the crimes of wicked people come back on them is not selfish vindictiveness nor merely self-preservation, but pure justice. You actually image God when you pray this. Think of the horrific atrocities. I mean, we could go all the way back to the beginning of time, but think of the, the horrific atrocities of a Stalin in Russia or a Hitler in Germany or Idi Amin, known as the Butcher of Uganda, who also served as its president. Or Pol Pot, who led the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia. Or Boko Haram in Nigeria. Or Al-Shabaab in Somalia. Or ISIS or Al-Qaeda. These problems are not isolated to America. It's a problem that stems from a wicked and evil heart. And God's people, like David, should rise up and pray, God, return upon them their own crimes. Because who but God can bring about the complete correction of such wrongs as some of these men and women have done? The reason for the psalmist's request in 28.4, look at verse 4. Give to them according to their work and according to their evil of their deeds. Give to them according to the work of their hands. Render them their due reward. The reason for his request is in verse 5. Look at verse 5 of Psalm 28. Because they do not regard the works of the Lord or the work of his hands. These people live in total disregard of who God is. They deliberately resist God and his works. And here is our hope and a warning to all evildoers. The latter part of verse five, he will tear them down. See, that's the thing about sowing and reaping. Sometimes it takes time, doesn't it? You don't put a seed in the ground and all of a sudden you reap a crop the next day. It doesn't work that way. 
but give it time. And we pray this way and give it time because these people are destined to perish in all their works and hope with them. Now, whatever the situation, I want you to look at the third section, and this is Lord, be my strength and shield, because whatever deliverance David experienced, he took it as God's answer. Look at verse six, because something changed right between these two sections. Blessed be the Lord, for he has heard the voice of my pleas for mercy. See, sometimes when God seems distant and silent, he does hear. He does listen. He does answer. Verse 7, the Lord is my strength and my shield. I love those pictures. In him my heart trusts and I am helped. My heart exults and with my song I give thanks to him. If the setting is Absalom's revolt, and I want you to hear this, then David's prayers were answered fully within a matter of a few weeks. That's all the time period that is existing between these two things. While David was under attack, he fled out into the wilderness. And Ahithophel actually gave Absalom great advice, but David had planted one of his own men in there to sort of contradict the advice. Ahithophel's pride was so huge that when at one time his advice wasn't taken, he went back to his house in his own village, put his things in order and hanged himself. God was at work in all these details behind the scenes. But it says, while David was under attack by Absalom and his men, 2 Samuel 18, 6, so the army, David's men, went out into the field against Israel and the battle was fought in the forest of Ephraim. And the men of Israel were defeated there by the servants of David. And the loss there was great on that day, 20,000 men. I want you to hear verse 8. The battle spread over the face of all the country. And listen to this phrase. And the forest devoured more people that day than the sword. Seriously? The forest. Providential and supernatural intervention, intervention based upon a specific prayer request of David in a time of trouble when the odds were mounted against him. Prayer then turns to praise and so added to the description of God as a rock in verse 1 are two more descriptions that are beautiful. And it is my strength and my shield. I love this picture of a shield. For the Spartan warrior, the shield was such an important piece of armor because it protected not only your whole person, but it would lock together and it would link and protect your brothers next to you. It's a really interesting Picture. As a matter of fact, Stephen Pressfield in his novel, The Gates of Fire, records the culture of Spartan warriors and he recounts the battle of Thermopylae at that mountain pass when all they did was try to try to slow down the advancing Persian army so the Greece, the Greece armies could gather and mount some kind of resistance. He tells the story through the experience of Zionis, a free but non-citizen inhabitant of Sparta, who observed the Spartan culture and, and recounts this to King Xerxes. Dianakes, one of the main characters, probably my favorite character, a warrior who refused honors and promotions, asks one of his young men that he's mentoring. He says, have your instructors taught you why the Spartans excuse without penalty the warrior who loses his helmet or breastplate in battle, but punished with loss of all citizenship rights, the man who discards his shield? They had, Alexandrus replied, because a warrior carries helmet and breastplate for his own protection. 
but his shield for the safety of the whole line. Dianike smiled and placed a hand upon his protege's shoulder. Remember this, my young friend. There is a force beyond fear more powerful than self-preservation. He was talking about the selfless protection of others on the line more than just protecting himself. Do you know the beautiful picture of God as our shield? He comes down and he protects not himself, but he protects those of us who are his children. Charles Spurgeon said this, those who pray well will soon praise well. Verse six, David says, blessed be the Lord, for he has heard the voice of my pleas for mercy. Second Samuel 18, we'll pick up our story with Absalom again. Verse nine, Absalom happened to meet the servants of David. This is in the forest of Ephraim. Absalom was riding on his mule and the mule went under the thick branches of an oak tree and his hair caught fast in the oak. Here's this beautiful man dangling from his hair in an oak tree. And he was suspended between heaven and earth with the mule that was under him that went on. Joab took three javelins in his hand and thrust them into the heart of Absalom while he was still alive in the oak. And ten young men, Joab's armor bearers, surrounded Absalom and struck him and killed him. God is not death. God hears our prayers. God responds to specific prayers. God knows the troubles we are in. And when everything is crumbling, he is a firm rock. He can even turn the forests against our enemy if he wants to. He hears us. Notice the result of being heard and helped. Look at verse 7. The Lord is my strength and my shield. In him my heart trusts and I am helped. My heart exults, literally, it leaps, and with my song I give thanks to Him. And at the close of this psalm, and this is the very last section, really like a benediction, Lord, be a saving refuge to those under my care. Look at verse 8. The Lord is the strength of His people. He is the saving refuge of His anointed. Oh, save your people and bless your heritage. I love this. Be their shepherd and carry them forever. The picture of a good shepherd who has a a lamb in its arm who may have been in trouble, and he doesn't just carry it to safety. Yes, safety, but he carries it into eternal safety. Carry them forever. God is a fortress of salvation. David says, save them, feed them, guard them, and carry them. So two questions. First, Are you safe in Christ eternally? Are you one of those sheep that he will carry into heaven eternally? Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. In Acts 4, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, stands up. A crippled man had just been healed. And the leaders don't like it because it's a tangible, objective, verifiable miracle. So Peter stands up and he says, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. Listen to the image that Peter now borrows. This Jesus is the stone 
He's the rock that was rejected by you. The builders, which has become now the cornerstone. Okay, so what does that mean? Peter will tell you. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Are you safe in Jesus Christ this morning? The good shepherd who is also the firm, stable rock, the cornerstone. See, David eventually went the way of all people. He died. And he was safe in his trust of God. Are you safe? Are you secure in Jesus? Secondly, and it's a simple question, are you resting in Christ this morning as a believer? Are, are you inordinately anxious or seized by fear? Because he invites you. He says this, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you what? What's the word there? Rest. He's like that hidden cavern where you can climb in and finally get some sleep for your exhausted soul. I'm going to invite our music team forward. We're going to respond this morning by singing Cornerstone. It's based on an older hymn. Okay, you'll, you'll notice some of the phrasing in there. But it is a praise for God, for God's grace to us by providing for us a Savior, the Cornerstone, whom the builders reject and people still stumble over. But He is, yes, the rock of offense. But it says in Romans, whoever believes in Him... Let me, let me read to you Romans 9, verse 32 to 33. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, which is Christ. As it is written, behold, I am laying in Zion, in Jerusalem, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. But then listen to what it says. But whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Do you believe in him for salvation? Do you believe in him for safety in your trouble? Let's pray.